Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the coolest violinists alive. You are listening to a super cool one right now. Her name is Jenny Luke. I'm your host, Matt Bell. If you own a radio, you've probably heard Jenny play. She has played and recorded with everyone from the Foo Fighters to Britney Spears, from Nicki Minaj to Snoop Dogg, from Dave Matthews to Ricky Martin, and from Meatloaf to Iggy Azalea. And not only is she an incredibly accomplished violinist, she's an amazing singer and songwriter. You'll hear plenty of her work in the next hour or so. Right now, you're listening to Time Bomb Tactics from her 2013 release called Dark Charade. This episode is brought to you by Electric Violin Shop, the world leader in electric bowed strings. No shop in the world has the selection and the expertise that EVS does. With options to amplify your violin ranging from about $100 for a simple yet great sounding pickup to a $10,000 10-string Australian-made double-neck violin, EVS has a solution for you. Electric Violin Shop. Jenny and I got to meet up in Anaheim, California. She'd just flown in that morning from a show somewhere played another show in Los Angeles, and then drove all the way out to meet me at my place. You can still hear the energy and the passion in her voice when she talks about her music. So please enjoy a little more of her music, and then my chat with Jenny Luke, rock star violinist. So I do want to talk about one of your songs. Okay. And um, so you've got a new single that's out right and video is out and you wrote you sang you produced you played you did all that Mm -hmm. so tell us about the song the song is called love hypocrisy and i wrote the first draft of it three years ago and i started producing it with a friend of mine named john whitley who's a drummer And I sang it and played synth parts on a little fatty Moog. And um, I have a Phantom G6 Roland keyboard. And he played drums. We did different beats. Oh, and I was also sent a beat, a slow, like, halftime version to write to from a different producer. But I didn't end up using that. And it's so funny how songs evolve so right. much, you know. So now, the song, I would call it pop rock, but with musical intelligence. Yeah. And catchy hooks. I love that about it. Um, it's powerful. It's feminine, but has, I think, a gender-neutral power element of it. And... It expresses me with throwing in influences of violin and highbrow musicality in a pop context. And I don't like to call it highbrow because I don't think any kind of music is better than another or any level of complexity is better than another. I think any type of music that speaks to you is valid and important and deserves to be recognized. So for the song... 
it's very, very much me. Something that's singable, something that's fun to listen to, and something that is cool to study over and over. I'm still listening to it, and that's great right, when yeah. an artist still likes to listen through it over and over. Right, what you're afraid of is being sick of it by the time yeah. anybody hears it. Totally. Right. So, yeah, just dig deep on that. Tell us where, uh, from what place did you write this? What do the lyrics mean? How was the construction of the thing put together? Mm, okay. I had a crush. <laughs> Don't we all start writing right. great songs when we have crushes? Or heartbreak. Um, so, I was into this guy, and I knew he wasn't going to be around all the time. But I knew the love and the connection was so good. So that's where I started writing from. And then I thought about other relationships that might be similar to this, like the alleged Marilyn Monroe JFK relationship, which I quote in the music video. Okay. And I'm not exactly Marilyn Monroe, but I'm kind of simulating Marilyn Monroe. It's like a cool scene where it kind of pays homage to that. And I think that's a timeless example of a relationship that's fascinating Mm -hmm. because you have those all throughout history. And that's one thing about my music that I really want to state or to have is timelessness. I want people to go back to my music in 20, 50, 100 years and say, wow, that was so cool for its time. And it's still cool now. You know, just like every great song that still lives on. Um, And it has acoustic violin. It has electric violin stacked. Lots of different intricate parts. Yeah. Um, I can talk about that if you want to hear about the layers. Okay. So the first thing was the solo. How long is the solo going to be? Do we want a solo? How do we make it catchy? Um, Is it too complex? I think it's really cool. I think electric violin is being welcomed and normalized and looked at in a different way than even three years ago, which I'm so happy about. I think Lindsey Sterling really helps that. All Mm. these different artists are helping commercialize it, but also helping people recognize that it can be a virtuosic instrument because that's a huge challenge in the music industry is this is still a relatively new instrument Mm. that people don't always take seriously as a means of virtuosic expression. And that I'm like so rooting to prove people, you know, to look a different way at it. Just like the electric bass. When that was first invented and people were playing it, people laughed. You know, you look at pictures, you look at articles, until it was really um, standard and right. and a cool thing. So I wanted to give an element of that. And my friend John was helping me come up with parts. Like, you know, Pitt's parts can be super catchy. Yep. People really like that sound. Like any non-musician is like, oh, what is that? The plucking thing. So throwing that in there is cool. Dun, 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 bum, 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 bum. You know, that's right. a good hook. Yeah, you got to have an instrumental hook too, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And hopefully maybe multiple little hooks, you know, that your ear catches on to. I think Katy Perry does such a good job in her music of that. You know? For sure. And... Some guitar riffs, so da, da, da. that's one thing I love too is always putting electric violin 
in the power place of the guitar. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily replacing guitar, but having just as much presence and almost like respect level right. as the guitar does in a band. So it's not necessarily ornamental, it's part of the structure. Yes! Yes, yes, yes. Part of the fabric of the composition. It's necessary, you know? It doesn't always have to be the cherry on top. I think people are starting to realize that now, and you can build around it. Right. So in composing the song, and writing the song and the musical elements, using the violin as a guitar hook um, element was a fun way to write it. And so then I worked on keyboard elements. And then in the actual studio, so like a couple months ago, finishing it up, um, I worked with Tai Long Lee, who was another producer, on kind of finishing the song. Because, you know, when you start a song three years ago, right. you kind of leave it for a while. And I was performing it a lot, because I know I loved the song, but I just didn't finish it. It needed something. So Tai helped me find a lot of elements that expressed the other less raw, primitive side, which I think we do a really cool job of combining this with the finesse of upper register strings and beautiful ambient delays in the violin and in the guitar, like in the verse, the guitar. There's an even-tied guitar patch that Lucas used that I love. It's one of my favorite sounds. So combining those and then my vocal stacking tons of vocals. I ran my vocal through the Line 6 M13. Mm-hmm. That's um, awesome. I really love doing that. I love finding new sounds, you know, new textures yeah. to combine. So then we did, I think, the vocal in one session, the final vocal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to try to, whatever my lead vocal is, I do like to try to get that all in one day because mm-hmm. otherwise it's hard to... Your voice changes every day, right? So yeah. it's hard to it's hard to match them if you've mm-hmm. got to go in and. Mm-hmm. But I mean, ideally, you can get it in one day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if the violin, if you're playing it in a really expressive way, that's your voice. Voice. Does this make sense? If you're singing it and you're playing any really important part on the same day, mm-hmm. it's gonna. It's gonna blend better. Yes, I think. And I think it's just truer to the feeling of expression that right. you're meaning to put into the song. Not to say that things can't evolve and you can, you know, try many, many different ways. But for this song, that worked really well because it captured the intensity and the excitement in the same day. Yeah, so there's tons of strings in here uh-huh. and tons of vocals. Yeah, there's not just your lead vocal. There's all kinds of stuff flying around in there. It, it's complex. It's uh, complex. It's yeah. hard to say that word. <clears throat> it's complex. It's a great sound song. Thank you. And uh, we're going to listen to it right now. So 
we are hanging out in Anaheim right now. I'm, I'm out here for the NAM show because I'm North Carolina and you're Southern Cal, so we don't end up in the same place very often. But it was funny when, when we just bumped into each other, you had just flown in from one show and then had to do another show, like probably with no sleep at all, yes. right? So talk a little bit about this, this rock star lifestyle. You know, you're flying all over the place and, and doing shows with a couple nice. different lineups, right? You've got your own project and you've got Saga Strings. So mm-hmm. yeah, sort of tell us what, what's going on in, in Rockstarville right now. Rockstarville. <laughs> well, you travel a lot too. I think... You know, in the ebb and flow of a musician's career, we just try to stay as prepared and energetic as we can during these times. This week in particular has been crazy because of Saga's music video shoot, and uh, in the last 48 hours, I was playing everything from jazz to hard rock to pop, R&B, and then this morning, classical on my acoustic. So I think it was good for feeling very diverse and fulfilled in lots of different ways. And, you know, a music director just asked me if I still play classical music because I play electric. I thought that was so funny. Because I think everybody who, well, most people who play electric are playing classical. Do you play classical sometimes? Yeah, yep. That's what I practice pretty much every day. I think I've seen that. Like techniques, like you have to go over your technique and the repertoire when right. you say. Yeah, I mean it's that was the Michael Jordan thing. Was like you, you got to practice dribbling. Oh, you got to uh-huh. practice making free throws, even when you're Michael Jordan. There's all the fundamentals. If you don't have fundamentals, you're sunk. Yes, that's a great point. Yeah. So I felt it's just good weekends like this, where I have a super creative week. And then on the weekend, I go fly somewhere, make money, and just keep my chops up. Because whatever the gig demands, that's what I'm going to do. And put my own little spin or creativity into it. Yeah. It's good. Good for the fingers. (laughs) So you're not just a violinist. You're a singer Mm -hmm. and and songwriter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, tell us about your your solo project, the Jenny Loop experience whatever yeah tell us (laughs) about what what is the feel what's the idea behind that and and where are you with that you got songs out and you're playing and yeah yeah i have an ep on itunes time on tactics which i produced and released when i was 21 and then since then i've had three singles always on my mind hold on tight which has an epic violin solo at the end kind of like a pink floyd vibe And then Lights Up Top Down, which was a super commercial, cool pop song that I did with my friend Laura Escaday. She's a producer. And now I have this single Love Hypocrisy and a video, and I would call it Pop Rock with Electric Violin. Yeah. And I would say it has classical elements, and it has lots of different elements, but I'll call it Pop Rock um, for the nature of the song and the instrumentation. And I have eight more songs that are almost done. One of them I just got the master back, the final mix of the master. Really happy about that. That's a duet with my friend Taylor Graves, amazing singer, keyboard player. So my writing is, I would say, mostly pop and rock. I write for other artists 
this week I was on a writing session for an EDM DJ. Sometimes I write for country artists as well. Um, I worked under Capital for Dark Child to write pop demos for major artists that were pitched, and I did that for two and a half years, so I love writing songs and doing demo vocals. I did some Britney Spears demo vocals as well oh, awesome. for like six months. <laughs> it was a fun job. So, yeah, that's a lot of what I do, and I'm so excited to release more music consistently in 2018. Yeah, awesome. And then you are also part, we interviewed episode two, I think, was Rachel Grace. You work with Rachel Grace really closely. You are in saga strings with her. So uh, if anybody missed Rachel Grace's episode, you need to go back and check it out after we're done. Let Jenny finish, my goodness. But um, yeah, tell us about that project and, and what's going on with that. Saga Strings is an electric violin, electric string band. It's four players, three electric violins and one electric cello. Sometimes we have a singer named Eliza. And it's from women all over the world. They come from Holland, Bulgaria, Mississippi, South Carolina. I'm from Iowa. And it's a high-energy, empowered group of women, and we put on a great show. Yes, you do. (laughs) Thanks. I have so much excitement and belief and drive from Saga. I just love being around so many empowered women and they're all amazing musicians on their own in their own careers. Each woman is just... It's like a total super group. That's cool. It's an honor to be in and it's an honor to co-manage a lot of responsibility because I am working hard on opportunities for their careers and for all of us as a collective unit. You know, and I work really closely with Rachel every single day. We're texting all day or calling and saying, what's the next opportunity? What's the next project? What's the next single? So we have When Doves Cry coming out. And then we have a new single called Let Go that will be coming out. And that's original stuff, too. That's an original song. When Doves Cry is the Prince cover. And then Let Go is produced by Henri Gill. And he music directs for Alicia Keys, Stevie Wonder, um, Daughtry, Will I Am. So he has worked with Saga a fair amount in sessions as well. And he's been a mentor to me probably for the last three years. In, just in different ways in producing my original music and also in the session world. He really helped my career a lot and putting me on the map for session work. You've heard Jenny talk about Saga Strings. If that sounds familiar, we interviewed her bandmate, Rachel Grace, in episode two. 
What you're listening to right now is from Saga Strings promo video on YouTube, which is really, really well done. That opening solo was Jenny playing the violin. Everybody. So tell us about some of the like more, the more cooler events and experiences and stuff that you've done. Just pick some, pick a couple of really cool ones and give us some stories. Okay. Give us some dirt. Okay. <laughs> well, the one this week was so enlightening and fun. I don't know if there's dirt, but it's cool for the electric violin world. So I was doing a lot of hook writing. For these EDM tracks with a DJ named Kashmir, K S H M R. He's huge, like, plays huge music festivals. I uh, had a recent release with Hardwell, banging, banging EDM. Um, so he had Ableton looping, and I would play violin hooks. And for the first three hours of the session, I'm like, Are you sure you don't want to try electric violin? He's like, I really want the sound of the acoustic. Okay, that's fine. So we do that, and the ideas are flying right and left. It was like the fastest-paced session, improv-wise, I had ever done. It was so fun. And he was writing amazing hooks, and then I'd play them on violin. And then he also wanted me to do, it was kind of challenging, Turkish versus Iranian-style hooks versus fiddle hooks versus Beethoven style hook for an EDM track. That's crazy. And then, um, then he wanted, like, Broadway, and then he wanted disco. That's a lot of influences to right. do in one session. Yeah, you've got to sort of throw your heart in a bunch of different places. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I was so thankful for all the different random experiences and gigs I've been on. Right. To prepare me for that session. So that's great. And so now he's got this whole library of licks that you've thrown down that he can just fly in yeah. whenever he needs to. Yeah. I think I'll be going back this week to help continue writing and also doing uh, music, like awesome. lyrics and melody, uh, which is a different mm-hmm. type of session than a session musician session. Um, so at the end of the session, I was showing him effects, which changed his outlook on what the violin was capable of. Right. So like, he, he's, he hadn't been thinking about, hey, I can run this thing through a flanger, mm-hmm. and that creates a whole different vibe. Yeah, or octosynth, or... Tri- I love trippy delays, like triplet delays. Mm. Like, you can do that for reggae, or you can do it in really cool, mysterious ways. Mm-hmm. So just showing him some of those, and then overdrives and distortions and stuff. So... Um, maybe there will be some kind of electrified and sound library coming soon. There you go. We'll see, I hope. Um, so that's really inspiring. So I do a lot of sessions. Let's see, who else? Okay. Black I assume Eyed a lot Peas. of these. Yeah. So she showed me like this list of bands, and it's like the who's who of <laughs> of the music world, like Foo Fighters. I'm a huge Foo Fighters fan. Yeah, oh my gosh, my friend Kinga called Rachel and me for that, that was amazing. So we played on The Sky is a Neighborhood, mm-hmm. Tom Lee is on viola, and we got to work with the producer Greg Kirsten, he did Adele and Sia Chandelier, he's an amazing producer, 
and Dave Grohl was there, and that was a wonderful session. So that song is out now. Yeah. It turned out really cool. Awesome. And we played on Black Eyed Peas' album that's coming out. Um, we played on Will I Am's new stuff, and I've played on his previous records too. Let's see. Um, I've done appearances with some people. Meatloaf, I'm sure you yep. knew. <clears throat> I knew about the Meatloaf. It was the beginning of my rock identity. Oh, was my, it? Was my it? parents were like, what are you doing? So that was early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so tell us about how that, maybe how that came about and then how it sort of maybe transformed your image and, and, and all that. Sure. Well, I came from Iowa and moved to L.A., so my image used to be a lot of pastels. <laughs> <laughs> She's wearing all black right now, by the way. All black, everything. Um, I guess I just love per the performance aspect of big shows, whether it's musical theater. It doesn't matter what style of music it is. Uh, so when I got called for this gig, I think I was called partially because of my technical ability and then also my performance of a big performance uh, theatrical kind of side to me. Yep, very much. <laughs> so some, I'm sure some people think it's dorky. I really like it. It's actually, you know, how I perform. It's really what Well, it's one heart. of the things they tell you in theater mm -hmm. is that every, every every movement has to be so exaggerated mm -hmm. because people are, people are a long way away from you. Yeah. And lights change everything, the stage changes everything, and what might be considered uh, like a normal set of movement in your regular life is going to look really tiny and insignificant on stage. So everything has to be so over the top and so larger than life Absolutely. in order to look normal. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And Meat was all about that, you know, because he was a rock opera singer. Oh, and nobody's more theatrical than him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he taught me so much about performance because he's an actor about your stage be your stage and no one takes it over and when you're singing a line or a lyric you commit to your character in the lyric so I play violin from that headspace when I play violin I'm singing what I would be playing in my head even if there aren't lyrics to it I play it the way I would express it or sing it sure I'm sure a lot of people do it but I think that also comes out in my body language, mm -hmm. how I express it. I loved working with him. I learned so much about character in performance. Um, so, okay, so my image, should, yeah, I guess my image changed also because I was adapting to being a part of his image and what was expected of me to wear and what I wore on stage, what I got photographed in. I mean, that's kind of funny that the clothes I wore on stage started becoming me. I think part of that, though, is because I had to provide a lot of the wardrobe. There was a stylist, but I, you know, I, sometimes you're on tour and you sure. were supposed to bring the clothes. So then those were my actual clothes. So yeah, the clothes. Well, I own these clothes. Yeah, I, I should wear probably them. wear them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, if you spend money on clothes... You also, I mean, I was like 19 when I started working with him, so I went, anyway, it's funny. So I kind of got branded as a metal, well, maybe not metal, but like hard rock violinist, um, and in my look, but now I think it's evolving a little bit 
into like a chic. I'm going for <laughs> chic cosmopolitan fashion forward. You know, but pretty much anything that strikes your fancy, my fancy. Yeah. You know, I think that's really important about being an artist and evolving. You know, so I guess also what I learned from all these sessions, like working with all these artists, is seeing if they're open-minded and how they evolve. Mm -hmm. Especially someone like Will I Am, where I get to work with him, you know, one year and then another year and then another year, I get to see how his brain evolves and his style and his music. Because he's been huge for a long time. I mean, yes. He's been a very influential person in the business for a long time, and the business and the sound and everything has changed during mm -hmm. that time. And of course, you expect any artist to evolve over time, right? I mean, you don't, good, yeah. you don't want somebody that they had this thing and then they're going to try to ride that horse until it dies. Totally. And I love what he's doing with technology in that aspect because he's seeing how quickly consumers want change in technology and how his music fits into that. And he also realizes what we need to hear from a social justice point of view and a political point of view. And the new Black Eyed Peas single, Street Living, is something we need to hear right now. You know? I, I, I want to do that as an artist as well. And my work is starting to reflect that about bringing up things that need to be talked about. And I really respect Will I Am for that. Well, that's been a thing throughout the history of pop music, right? I mean, you go back to the 60s and the protest music... And there's just, the best artists have been the ones that really had a lot to say. Mm -hmm. And so then you've got to take this message that you've got and you've got to combine that with interesting and new music. And But then we still have to use the old concepts of hooks and melodies and mm -hmm. how does all this come together and then how does that swirl around with your personal voice of where you're from and where you're headed? This is such an important topic, I think, especially for women right now. And after the Women's March last week, I was so struck by how much power I saw, even, you know, social media feeds, people speaking up more than ever before. And even something like that might have been taboo, like assault or like speaking up for yourself two years ago, is now beginning to be commonplace and accepted and women are finding power through that and people are finding power through getting their voices heard and I think that is so necessary for development in racial equality, gender equality and closing the pay gap mm -hmm. and accepting each other and that's what I did at my show at NAM. I talked for a second halfway through the show I stopped the music, and I just talked to the audience briefly, and I just told them this song, I sang Imagine, John Lennon, and I said, this is for anyone who feels discriminated towards or not respected, or if you're in a place where you're still trying to find your voice, you're, you're seeking to be understood, you're seeking to connect if you don't have a place for that, or you're you're lost, or you don't have hope, know that you are loved, and that is so central to my message of what I want people to feel when they hear my music. I want them to feel connected and feel empowered, 
So even if it's a fun song, I want my listener to walk away going, Ginny gets me. Because I know my favorite songs are the songs that get me. I connect immediately with. Or the artist, it seems like, oh gosh, man, they really have gone through what I went through. You know, and I'm finding my own voice as a 26-year-old woman through this time. It's a big time of change. And choosing how to put my message out. There's a lot of decisions along the way. You know? Um, But I'm excited the conversation is open. It's an exciting time to be a part of the music business right now. I I feel like, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you so I'm I'm remembering the the 80s is a time where music really transformed a lot and there's this whole you know when you think about the 80s there's this soundtrack to the 80s that's so iconic right Mm -hmm. and then and and those of us that were growing up in that generation were looking back maybe wistfully on the 60s when there was this really important change that there all kinds of social change mm-hmm. was happening at the same time music was mm-hmm. music was changing really rapidly too in the 80s in a lot of ways but I, I feel like we're maybe in the beginning stages of a really hard turn mm-hmm. in social events and music and yes. it, it's exciting to be at the front end of that Absolutely. Of, of what I I sort of feel like there's another this this generation has a lot to say and I think being involved musically in that is partially being the voice for the generation. And I want to be that for women and for people. And I've specifically gone through my own challenges that I've been able to heal from, and I want to help other people do that as well. And just to lift each other up, that's what we need so much right now. We need positive artists who are spreading love. And I, I'm so excited to watch the Grammys tonight to see. Yeah. You know. I've got some friends that are there. Yes, I'm really jealous. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I will be there someday. Um, you know, I just think that that's what I know I am called to do with my artist work. And with Saga, too. We've defined in our mission statement that we are a group of empowerment. We empower other women, we empower all people, every race, every nationality, every age. We want Saga to be something that everyone can connect to and be understood by. Yeah. It's a very, very important connection and message that we want to spread with every single person we play for. So, I, I'm excited about each release and I'm excited about who I am as an artist but mostly I'm excited
and say, here's where we are today, right? How did we arrive at this place? Where, where did this come from? You come from a musical family, right, in mm -hmm. Iowa. Mm -hmm. And when did you start playing and singing and start doing the whole musical thing? I come from two musical parents. Mom is a pianist. My dad was a conductor and then became a doctor. So we moved to Germany when I was two. And he was a doctor on the army base in Vilsack. And that's where I started violin and piano. Um, and I started with a German teacher with a tiny violin. And then when I was four, we moved to Iowa. And then I started studying in Dubuque, Iowa, my hometown. And then I, at seven years old, started, was it seven or nine? I don't remember if it was seven or nine years old, but I started studying with Doris Prusel, who is one of the premier Suzuki teachers and educators internationally known. Uh, she and her husband, William Prusel, helped edit the viola books. So I was a super Suzuki kid. I don't know if there's a lot of other kids out there who also did Suzuki, but... More than a few. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Practice every day. Listen to your Suzuki pieces at night while you sleep. Yeah. And my brothers all did Suzuki. I have three brothers. They're all older than me. So I started practicing, you know, in, intensely when I was about six or seven. And then I started going to summer music festivals when I was nine um, and doing concerto competitions. So the first summer music festival I went to was in Toronto, the Aria Festival. And I went with my older brother, who was also a classical violinist. And then I went to Meadow Mountain Encore and Interlochen. Mm. And then I studied at Interlochen for high school, too, academy. And then I was in a girl group, um, and I played electric violin in the girl group and sang. So, yeah, when did the electric violin come in, and where was sort of maybe not the departure from Suzuki, but at least the the fanning out of, uh -huh. of your musical uh -huh. style and taste? I was in a jazz group when I was 11. My so, parents so early. Yeah, yeah, it was like a you know like a kids jazz combo thing, and my parents noticed that they could never hear the violin, so I got my first electric when I was twelve, and it was a Yamaha SV one thirty, and I still have that. I used it on tour. It's awesome. Um, I don't know if they make that model They anymore. just discontinued it. Oh, yep. okay. So that was a great violin. I'm very thankful that they got that violin in particular. See, Omaha's great, and it lasted me for so long. Um, then I went to acting class in L.A. as a prize for winning a concerto competition. My parents said, if you win, I played Mendelssohn, if you win, you can go to L.A., an act for a summer. Right. But then I ended up moving because my acting teacher was like, Janine really needs to live in LA. She needs to start a career here. So freshman year I was homeschooled and I started meeting people and was in this girl group, Adam812. 
um, which was like my first touring experience because we toured around buses. We did like gay pride festivals. We did um, summer festivals. They were like 30,000 people, so that was bigger crowds. I was 15, 16, 17, 18. And then I started going to school at Interlochen during the year, like the academy, mm -hmm. uh, for theater and violin and vocal lessons. Um, and then I would leave school and do these shows with this girl group. So I was playing electric violin a lot then. And that's, I guess, when I started collecting pedals. Because I was hanging out with a guitar player, and he was showing me what effects sounded good. See, the guitar players, they always wreck everything. <laughs> it's like, hey, I can make different sounds. Can you? And he goes, no, I kind of have one. That's, <laughs> that's not fair. I was jealous. And... I also, you know, I was young, 16, 17, 18, I didn't have a lot of money to pour into investing in pedals. That sure. was like the last thing. I was working during some summers teaching dance to pay for my plane tickets uh, to L.A. sometimes. But I was very thankful for the companies early on who supported me and helped me get the gear I needed because I still... I have relationships with those companies today, specifically Pigtronics, Fender, PV, those, and Fishman. Those were some of the first companies that ever supported what I did, and I was so thankful. I would not have been able to start my electric pilot career to where it's at without their help. Yeah, because, you know, we think, well, it's, it's just a hundred bucks for that pedal. That's a pretty inexpensive pedal. Well, to a kid, a hundred bucks is a lot of money, you know? I didn't just fall out of the sky. Yeah, and amps and cables. Yeah, amps are crazy expensive. and started at Musicians Institute, still with the girl group, and was in a vocal program and a keyboard program, and that's when I started getting into Logic and producing a little bit on my own. Um, and then the girl group was ending right about when I was 19, because uh, the lead girl wanted to go into acting more. And then I got the call for Meatloaf in a break in between semesters. Mm -hmm. So they said, Can, do you want to come play on his album? And I was like, sure, when? And they're like, next week. 
and I was on a cruise ship with my family. I'm like, okay. And then they're like, oh, by the way, in two weeks, they might want you to go on tour, but we're not sure. But in case, can you learn his entire discography by next week or the week after? So I spent that whole cruise in the little tiny cabin room learning Meatloaf songs. And they wanted me to play keys for that tour. So I had to go to like the theater part of the cruise ship and right. practice. That's awesome. Yeah. That was a lot. So you ended up being on a working vacation. Yeah. But it was great. And I think both classical preparation, of course, combined with the girl group. You know, touring around, adjusting. We did like high school tours. So adjusting to not being able to hear yourself and still playing accurately and singing accurately. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, not having what you need on stage but still putting on a great show. I.e. a good monitor mix. Your shoes hurt. um, You had a bad day. You know, everything. Putting on a great show no matter what. I'm so... I mean, I think every working musician in L.A., it does that, but that's something that has to be trained, and that was my training, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, and I did musical theater growing up, too, about three shows a year, so I got training that way, but I think so much of it is not just the playing or the technical aspect, it's the whole performance package and reliability as a performer, you know, so I was really thankful for those opportunities to prepare me then for this arena tour. Well, and then to learn that stage is, what, an hour and a half, two hours of the 24 hours? Mm -hmm. How do I exist on a bus with these people? Mm -hmm. And, you know, learning how to live on the road is a very, it's not something you grow up knowing, right? Because nobody, I mean, who grows up on a bus tour? You gotta learn how to do this stuff. Yeah. And how to relate to people. Coming from a classical family, everything was very precise. Music was talked about in a certain way. Measure numbers, proper dynamic names. You know, if you were wrong about something, you were corrected. And then getting into the industry at a younger age, I would say youngish because I was like, you know, I would say 18, 19 was when I really started working a lot professionally. I did J. Cole's album, then I did Snoop Dogg's album, then those were new eye-opening experiences. Then I started realizing that I needed to learn to talk about music in a different way. Do you feel like that mm-hmm. in between your things? It is, it's very different from the classical world. Okay. And I've been out of that world for so long that it's, I'm always reminded when I get around classical people, like, mm-hmm. how far I've moved from that world. Mm-hmm. I... I always just have to remind myself, what environment am I in today? Right. You know, am I working with a composer today? Am I on a film score? Or am I on a fiddle session? These are all Nashville cats. Or am I on a jazz session? I did a record with Vinnie Caliuta on drums, um, and it was all like jazz cats. You know, it was like a prog jazz type record. Mm -hmm. And it was charted out, but even their new vocabulary and new types of interactions musically. So just, uh, you know, it was learning how to have an open mind starting at 17, 18, 19. Yeah, so talk about all the different styles and and you've had to sort of become fluent in all these different languages 
and what's the learning process there and, and how do you how do you if I'm if I'm on a fiddle gig today, you know, where did you learn to do that and how how does that thought process different from playing for Snoop? Okay. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, I think studying recordings, of course, or your favorite players of those styles. Um, how did I learn fiddle? I played a little bit of fiddle as a child at like four and five, but then didn't... I had it around in Iowa, but I didn't really revisit it until I started getting called for country gigs out here in L.A., and... One of my best girlfriends, Lacey Rostiak, is an amazing fiddler. Like, she was a U.S. champion fiddle player. And she really hung out with me and worked with me. And I also studied, like, YouTube videos and records. Oh, I guess I transcribed a lot of fiddle solos. I, I forgot about that. And I had to learn, like, 50 songs in a night for one country gig. And then... I was in seven country bands at one point in L.A., Vegas, Orange County, and San Diego. So I think just getting familiar with the styles of playing. And then similarly with other nationalities of music. You're playing Hispanic music, you're playing Persian music. It's so important, I think, to capture the essence of that style. Right. And to the open mind thing is so much a part of my playing. I think I hope to always stay open-minded and always learn because you can take so much from other eras and other players, you know. Um, let me think. So other, how did I learn other styles of music? Yeah. So it's a, basically you're saying it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. You've got to learn to get into that headspace, and then you're going to listen to a lot of it, and you're going to break it down and analyze it and transcribe it. So it's work. I think having friends who do it or are doing it with you really helps. Like, you invite your friend over, and you listen to records, and you play together for hours. And hopefully, if you're having fun, it's just a natural thing that's going to happen. Right. And similarly, with great R&B and disco strings... Uh, Mark Cargill is the man. He's the guy in town, an old gentleman who is on all of Henri Gill's sessions. He's always concert master, and you know you just sit beside someone who's lived through that time and put strings on all these classic records, and he'll just drop a few pearls of wisdom about how to lay it back or don't play that gliss, you know, right on one. Just take a quick breath or, you know, maybe start that one a little out of tune and then slide up to the pitch. You know, all these little tricks that you hear, oh, that was what was in great disco strings or that was a 70 strings, you know, and then you're able to draw from that. And of course, you get excited when you're around a high level person like that. Sure. And if you don't have access to those people in person... I think you can study on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And a funny thing in my life has been ending up working with the producers that I listened to as a child. Like, and some of the artists, especially Britney Spears, Evanescence, Alicia Keys. That's just so crazy to me. Listen, Foo Fighters, 
I loved Everlong. I was like obsessed. Um, I was trying to think of other artists that I just really studied my favorite string arrangements as a kid, and now as a professional musician, I'm able to work with those producers, and yeah. those artists. So I think just spending time on the music you love naturally will prepare you. You know? And I'm learning now, too. I did so much music that I, like, didn't really want to do as a kid. Because you have to practice. Sure. And you do that for six to eight hours a day. And you do it, and you do it, and you do it. And you have pride in it. At least I did as a kid. I was like, oh, I'm talented for my age or whatever. And then you get to L.A. or you get to a big city, at least coming from a small town mentality. And you're like, whoa, everybody's good. Right. (gasps) Everybody's good. So then... Being able to identify what you've studied earlier and what you're really good at, then you can apply to what you want to be hired for, you know? And I think I get to play music that I love and work with artists that I love because I naturally spent time studying that music and being so immersed in it, you know? I think, I don't know if that's part of your musical experience as well for sure and and my musical experience isn't quite as diverse as yours but it's more sort of in the pop and rock thing it's not quite you know i'm, I'm not playing a, in a country band one day and playing for snoop the next and touring with meatloaf those are just obviously three incredibly different worlds but it, it is it's a lot of the, the headspace you've got to you've got to be in a different place mm-hmm. when you're playing motown mm-hmm. than if you're playing Steve by. Yeah, absolutely. But just like, you know, Renaissance versus Baroque versus classical versus romantic versus contemporary. So you know all the things that define that period of music. You know the articulations. You know the phrasing. Maybe even, of course, the bow strokes. Maybe the fingerings that you would choose to give it whatever kind of color in the Mm -hmm. romantic piece versus Baroque. So you just know what's appropriate. So then I kind of think of that in all these genres of what I recorded. It's the way that we... Or I go in... It's the way that we... Alright, this is another one of her singles called Lights Up Top Down. I want to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor, Electric Violin Shop. Yes, I do work at Electric Violin Shop two days a week, mostly handling social media, content creation, and artist relations. My favorite part of the job, hands down, is getting to mess with all the instruments and gear. But a close second is seeing the faces on people who walk through the door and see dozens of electric violins hanging on the wall and more in display cases. Racks of amps and shelves full of pedals. And seeing the realization that they're going to be hanging out here for a while. You see, no other place on earth has nearly 20 different manufacturers of electric violins, violas, cellos, and basses. Our wall has everything from four-string violins up to seven. Fretted violins, what? Octave violins tuned like a cello? Solid body, semi-hollow body, hollow body, acoustic electric instruments, MIDI violins that can sound like a piano or an oboe, violins made of wood, acrylic, carbon fiber, and heaven knows what else, a dozen different amplifiers, pedals galore, my goodness. 
And then the people. Chris, Susie, and Duncan, the owners, have been in the electric violin for years. They've seen it all. Matt and Shauna are touring pros with tons of experience in gigging situations from small churches and coffee houses all the way up to huge theaters and arenas and festivals. Jamie, our luthier, is a professional guitar player. He touches every violin that goes out the door, and his attention to detail is insane. Trust me when I say that no other shop even comes close. The very top players in the world all recommend Electric Violin Shop because they take their gear very seriously. Find out why for yourself. ElectricViolinShop.com So we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about gear. We are really talking about soul and life and like the meaning of art. Yeah, yeah so it was awesome. But I do want to ask you because you have a very unique violin. Mm-hmm. Like the most unique you can get, there's one of them, right? Uh-huh. Um, so tell us about your violin. My electric was made by Lyle Knudsen in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I did some of the design with him, the shape and the color and specific design elements like the faders as opposed to volume knob um, and the faders for EQ on there. Uh, And I just love the feel of it and it's pretty lightweight. It sounds fantastic. It's my favorite sound that I've heard and I've tried a lot of electric violins. I love mine. I think that also helps me give a unique or get a unique tone. Yep. Um, and they're available for direct sale um, or by direct sale. You can just email me through my website or at Lyle Knudsen. So you can buy the Jenny Luke violin? Yes. And my specific color is a uh, bright sparkly gold you can get them in silver red blue purple green black awesome there you go lyle knutson there you go and while we're here we're talking you know we can talk a little bit about gear too you want to just just give sort of a little bit of a rundown of what's what's in your rig right now okay um my go-to for travel is line six and 13 and I have a mini wah that I love, and then I have my bigger Dunlop wah that my old tech put a piece of wood glued on top of it so my heel can rest in there and I can stabilize myself if I'm wearing really high heels. See, that's the thing. That's part of male privilege. (laughs) It's like they don't think about women wearing heels trying to operate these things. It's all, you know, you always figure it's some dude and a pair of chucks. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I do make a lot of uh, revisions or whatever you would call it. Like I change certain things about my pedals to make sure I can perform in them. And I also practice in heels. I, I try to go to sound check in heels to make sure I've practiced that day the height of the heel I'm going to wear. Especially if it's going to be something like a 5-inch heel. Oh, my goodness. Like you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hate that when I've got my five-inch heels on. I'll be six foot six. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you have to, like, practice moving the way you're going to move. I can imagine. <laughs> and I was recently on a gig, and I practiced my solo and running from one end of my apartment to the other end and up and down my flights of stairs in my heels 
and in my leather jacket because I knew I'd be like a little oh, confined. Yeah. And then like getting to the pedal board in time because I knew I was going to run from the arena over to the pedal board by this part of the song. Right. So I think just little, you know, tips and tricks here and there of yeah. what works for people. So, okay, there's, um, let's see, I told you about the PD Wireless that mm-hmm. has been a tank and has worked in every country. It's great. Beer spilled on it. Water spilled on it. It's great. Uh, PV gear is indestructible. It is, and it's so helpful yeah. when you travel. <laughs> um, so, some other favorites are Pigtronics, Ecolution, Delays, Beautiful. Um, the, let's see here, little notes. Um, when you got so much gear, you got to look at your notes to remember, that's, that's good, life is good. <laughs> yeah. I've just collected and chosen like what I like over the years, you know. Polysaturator, that was my first distortion. Mm. Um, the Infinity Looper was one of my first loopers, and mm-hmm. that has been really cool to compose on, actually. Sure. Um, cool to sing through, but really great for compositions. Um, let's see, Z-Vex uh, Box of Rock is great, <laughs> and Whammy Digitech. On tour, I used the Digitech GSP-1101 multi-effects processor for a mm-hmm. while. That was very helpful because uh, we could pre-program everything. It was the same every night, and right. my tech could make changes on the side of stage if needed. Mm. You know, like if during a transition, he could come over. And this happened a couple times where I just wanted a slight change. Um... And if you're in certain shows where it's choreographed and you're not really supposed to bend down very much or fiddle with your board, right. it's very helpful to have someone else in control of that. Yep. Because um, that can be something that you could get fired over mm-hmm. if you're, you know, making too many. The audience didn't pay to see you up there fiddling with knobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I really liked that process. That's why I, I only use multi-effects. For the most part, I've got two stomp boxes that I use, but I set them and forget them. Okay. And I, you will not see me bend down and touch my pedal board unless something is wrong. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I love a lot of these analog pedals for studio, too. You know, you can spend more time right. getting exactly what you want. You can kind of play around uh, and see. See, I do most of mine in post. Oh, so like guitar, I record. Right? Yep, I uh-huh. record flat and dry. And then sure. everything else is done with reamping. I like you reamping. I like using guitar rig, but I just sometimes want a physical, tactile experience in the session where yeah. I feel like I have more power. Actually, this is interesting as far as communication in the session. I like to have the power at my fingertips. If there's an engineer that like isn't cooperating that well or like that isn't experienced with electric violin, sometimes it's nice to have more control. Right. But if you have someone you really trust, yeah, me, <laughs> I engineer all my own stuff. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Yeah. So then, that it's perfect. Yeah. Um, I trust me implicitly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, but I guess that changes session to session for me. Sure. It just depends. Um, let's see. What else do I love? MSR. Carbon Copy Delay, Hall of Fame Reverb, Monarch Butterfly Overdrive that got stolen. So sad. What kind of evil person steals gear? I know. It's just awful. It's like stealing a puppy. What's wrong with you, man? <laughs> they stole my 
in ears too. Like those aren't gonna fit your like ears. Like custom molded ears. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <sighs> um, I love my Dunlop Wah and the Exotic Overdrive, which is tiny. So great for little run and go gigs. Yep. I love those. I love tiny pillows. Yes. They're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> and if you you have to throw them in your purse, it's great. I know. I love that. <laughs> and um, I wanted to throw out, I use a Trace Elliott amp, mm. um, which is part of the PV family, but uh, it's a bass amp most yep. commonly, but it has this great EQ on it, and it sounds great on my acoustic with pickup and with my electric. It has reverb delay. It has a phaser on there. Um, it's just been wonderful in every setting. I've gotten some of my best violin sounds through bass amps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. I was listening to the, the black violin mm -hmm. setup, and I really want to try what they do. Those guys have preamps. great gear. Yeah. Wow. They have very large budgets, too. Yes. I was wondering. Yeah. They do pretty well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they have great gear. That's my thoughts. Awesome. I told you we'd get weak. We blacked out from the field. How did we end up in this condition? This is the title track from Jenny's first EP called Dark Charade. And we started showing symptoms. Is there a So that's what I was going to ask next. You, you already beat me to it. So how does, how do all these really diverse experiences, how do they inform and contribute to your signature sound, the sound that when, when you step out to play songs that you've written in a line that, you know, this is, this is me, and of course we are sort of, in a lot of ways, the sum total of our experiences. So how do all those sort of swirl together to, to create who you are and what you do? I think they express different sides of me, so different songs capture different emotional sides, and it'll be apparent genre-wise, you know, if that's more of a laid-back fiddle kind of thing, what that's saying about the emotion. And if it's a heavy, hard rock, aggressive sound, and I'm specifically talking about electric violin, that's very much a part of me too. I have a lot of intensity when I perform on stage. Um, but also I think some femininity and uh, freedom and softness. So I think these are all sides of me and also sides of people. Mm -hmm. 
and I think that's really important to express. So, I have a lot of songs, you know, I've probably written over 100 or 150 songs, and musically, how that translates is whatever fits the emotion or the message of the song is going to be musically appropriate, and it is inherently a part of me, Right. whether that's a crazy, overdriven electrified violin solo, or that's like beautiful, stacked acoustic string pads, which is also something I love to write. Uh, whether that's a film score, I just worked on a score last month that was very expressive and very romantic. And that's what I was really good at as a kid, like for competitions, I would usually win on slow movements. Mm. I won two on fast, but slow movements were what I really enjoyed as a kid. Um, I think just because the nature of expression is really valued. Right. That, that's what I live for, for music, is awesome. the, the nature of expression. So suppose we get to go, I don't know, let's pick a number, 10 years in the future, and we get to land in like the best possible scenario for Jenny Loop. What, what does it look like? What's, what's happened in the last 10 years now that we're 10 years in the future, and where are you now? If you get to choose where this whole train is going. I would be touring my show and touring with Saga throughout the year, similar to how Jack White works with his bands, mm -hmm. the Racketeers, and he develops artists. I would have written and produced Grammy award-winning songs, and I would have an outreach program for young women and young musicians. Um, and I could work a little, well, maybe not less, but have more control. And it's happening as my career c continues moving forward. I have more and more control every year, which I'm so thankful for. You know? You get to be pickier. Yes, yeah, about what sessions I do or what artists I work with or the way I want to record my record, you know. Um, and I'd be collaborating. This is a big thing for me. I'd be collaborating with the top-level artists that I want on my own original material, and that's a dream of mine mm. because I get called for sessions for their visions. Right. But I would love to collaborate more on a collective vision that I create with them. For example, Herbie Hancock, Christina Aguilera, Alicia Keys, Pink, Regina Carter, and we've been in touch for a bit, um, to really make music together. Fantagram, Kimbra, these are also my favorite artists, and I'd love to make work with them. You get to call Adele and tell her to play on your own. Here's what I need you to do, Adele. <laughs> That's great. A foolish child is This is our last break. You're listening to another track from Dark Charade. 
this one called Foolish Child. In a minute, Jenny flips the script on me and asks me a question. I'm not really used to getting interviewed, so you might get a chuckle out of my stumbling around. I was around, I got my first electric violin in like the late 90s. Um, so I've been doing electric violin for, for 20 some years and sort of had to learn a lot of stuff and it's, it's, um, it took a long time for me to learn all this. So I find my role now is sort of, I guess, one of the elder statesmen of this, one of the early adopters of this thing and I can teach the young kids the stuff that took me 10 years to learn, mm -hmm. I can teach them that stuff in six months. Mm -hmm. And then they can take that and go off to the mm -hmm. next level. So maybe I look at like my career and my legacy maybe as being part of a foundation that allows other people to, to go off and, and do artistic things. That's fantastic. Um, you know, because you know, we're always standing on the shoulders of the people that came before us. Yes. And yeah, maybe I just want to provide some of those shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I've got my own stuff too, and, and, and my, my artistry is not as groundbreaking, it's not as, you know, like you're going to hear something from me and go, oh my god, I've never heard anything like that before. That's not, that's not what I do, but you may not have heard a lot of violinists do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, and I have an engineering degree. My, my degree is in engineering, I have a minor in computer science, so... Being able to take the, the mathematical and the programming sense and combine that with music. And that's that's part of what I'm doing with Electric Violin Shop. And a lot of the educational stuff that we're doing is, is teaching people, and this podcast is mm -hmm. teaching people that you, there's this, there used to be, and like you were saying, even three years ago, a much narrower field of possibilities for people who wanted to do contemporary strings, electric violin. We're trying to fan open that that world of possibilities mm -hmm. and hope that some creative people walk through that door and realize that this the room is much larger than we thought it was. Yes. Yes, just like an electric electric guitar is a different means of expression than what you would do with an acoustic right. electric violin. So many possibilities that are unique to that instrument. And as of yet, unexplored. Mm -hmm. And I hope kids can find a voice. And, and I don't just want to say kids, but I hope the next generation can find their voices through it more and more. And I hope people can support each other in the electric violin community. Because really, every person who is excited about it helps the other. Right. You know, I feel like the competition can be very fierce and it doesn't really need to be so fierce when we're all lifting right. each other up in this tiny, tiny... There's industry. plenty of room for all of us. Yes. And I think social media has been really helpful in helping people connect. Mm -hmm. It's a world that didn't exist when I was younger. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've got students that are, that are teenagers and 
sort of connecting them is, is we're talking and they're going, well, I wonder about this. So actually, I saw somebody in Malaysia who's doing something like that and trying to connect people mm-hmm. and say, you know, there's, because it used to be growing up, you know the deal. You grow up and you're sort of a big fish in a small town. And then when you get to LA, you realize, oh my goodness, there's, there's this whole world I didn't even know about. Well, you can be a kid in Dubuque, Iowa now and be connected with players in England and be connected with players in Australia and be connected with players in, in Tokyo and, and all these places where you couldn't do that mm-hmm. when we were kids. Yeah. Um, so I think the sense of community through social media is is a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. I do occasionally see trolls and, and all that, but I think overall the community is pretty supportive on mm-hmm. social media. I think you know, you look at who who you follow, and I look at who I follow, and you look at who Abby Stalschmidt follows, and you look at who all these different people follow, and those webs are really connected. Mm-hmm. You know, we follow a lot of the same people, mm-hmm. and they follow us, and there there is this web of players out there who we all kind of know each other. Yeah, absolutely, and stay in touch. A lot of people ask me how I met Rachel, you know, with the beginning of my involvement with Saga. I had reached out for help from her to see what effects she used getting ready for my tour. And she really helped me. We were just Facebook messaging, and I still hadn't met her in person. And then one day she asked me to come play for a Saga gig, like the next day, without ever meeting me, but we had had so much correspondence, you know. So you guys met basically through social media? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On Facebook. It's really cool. It's a cool memory to have yeah. because our friendship is so deep now you know right and I'm very thankful for that meeting and every time I hear back from another person who is open to having a new relationship kind of um, I'm excited and look forward to it because you never know what can come great records great creative works can come just from reaching out to someone yeah well, speaking of all that, where do people find you? What's your website, your social media? How do, how do they connect with you? JinnyLuke.com, and my handle is JinnyLuke, G-I-N-N-Y-L-U-K-E, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, um, Snapchat, thing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. This has thank been so fun. Me. It's really been awesome to see this window into your soul and your your thought process and your musical life. Thank you. Awesome. I've been a fan for a long time. It's cool to finally just really be able to sit and talk with you. So. Not a kiss until the sunrise. You can't unveil my night's disguise. We can be lovers in the night. So that's another episode of Rockstar Violinist. 26 episodes. It's hard to believe, but we are just getting warmed up. I'm headed back to California in a couple days to hang with some more rock stars and then off to New York a week or so later to hang with some more. Got to keep those rock stars coming. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a second to give us a five-star rating and leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening on and maybe even share on social media, right? Help a brother out. Anyway, we'll see you in a couple more weeks with yet another rock star violinist. <laughs>